Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 683 for the 6th of March, 2020. This week, graphics tablets without screens are difficult to master and graphics tablets with screens are prohibitively expensive. The Wacom One changes all that. In short circuits, Photoshop is 30 years old and it predated widespread use of digital cameras by more than a decade. Photoshop continues to be an essential tool for designers and photographers. Some companies are going on the offensive to fight scams by sending warnings to customers. And in spare parts, only on the website, some tech conferences, including Facebook's big F8 event, have been canceled because of coronavirus fears. Crooks and scammers are capitalizing on those fears, so beware of messages from people you don't know. And 20 years ago, theaters were beginning to offer tickets online with a test in five movie houses in Dallas. Tablets have become essential devices for graphic artists and a lot of professional photographers, but getting used to them is difficult because the tablet is separate from the screen. Tablets with screens, although a lot easier to use, are costly. But now Wacom has a screen with a writable surface and a modest price. The first thing that has to be said about the Wacom One is it is not a Cintiq. It carries a far lower price tag than all but the smallest of Wacom's tablets, and it has a screen much like the higher-priced Cintiq line. The device is surprising both for what it has and for what it omits. Wacom sent me a review unit to work with, and I'll come back to that not-a-Cintiq comment a little bit later, but I can say now that that was an observation, not a criticism. Instead, let's start at the beginning taking the Wacom One out of the box and installing it. Besides being compatible with both macOS and Windows computers, the tablet can be used with several Android devices from Samsung and Huawei. The box contains a screen, a stylus unlike anything Wacom has provided before, a power supply, and a cable assembly with four ends. The installation instructions consist entirely of pictures. That may seem reasonable for a product intended for designers, photographers, and others who are strong visually. A few words would have been helpful, though. The unusual cable is required because the Wacom One presents to the computer as a separate screen, and that means it needs a high-definition multimedia interface, an HDMI port. Those who already have two monitors connected to their computer may encounter some problems at that point. My primary computer is a notebook system in a docking station. The docking station has two DisplayPort ports that are both in use, one HDMI port and one digital visual interface port. So compatibility appeared to be promising, but that's where the problem occurred. When both DisplayPort connections are in use, neither the HDMI port nor the DVI port can be used. I had started a chat session with a Wacom support technician to see if they knew of a workaround and realized during the chat session that the computer itself 
had one HDMI port linked to video from the built-in screen. Aha! Connecting the Wacom One to the computer's HDMI port worked. So, at that point, I had two external monitors connected to DisplayPort ports on the dock, and the Wacom One connected to the HDMI port on the computer, and the tablet was displaying an image. It didn't react to the pen, though. The Windows 10 Services panel showed the Wacom Professional Service as running, but the Wacom Tablet Properties app said no device was connected to the computer. Eventually, I realized that one of the cable assembly's four connectors was unconnected. When I plugged in the USB cable, the Wacom One was shown as connected, and everything worked. That was entirely a user error, or at least almost entirely. And that shows why some text would have been helpful. Instead of just showing pictures, a bulleted list would have made it nearly impossible for me to miss that one crucial step. Here, for example, number one, connect the HDMI cable to the computer or dock. Two, connect the USB cable to the computer dock or USB hub. Three, connect the small HDMI cable to the Wacom One. Four, connect the USB cable that's paired with the small HDMI cable to the power supply. Five, plug the power supply into an AC power source. Six, push the power button on the top right edge of the tablet to turn the device on. 7. Visit Wacom.com download to obtain and install the latest drivers. A list like that would have saved some setup time, even though the problems I encountered were clearly the result of operator inattention. In other words, my error. Well, then it was time to make a decision. The Wacom One could be set up to extend the desktop or to mirror one of the other monitors. There are advantages to both options, but working out differences in resolution can be challenging. My computer's primary monitors measure 27 inches diagonally and have 2560 by 1440 pixel resolution. The Wacom One measures just 13 inches diagonally and has a resolution of only 1920 by 1080 pixels. The display is sharp and clear because the resolution is 176 pixels per inch on a screen that measures 11.5 inches horizontally, 6.5 inches vertically. Because of the mismatch between the computer's primary monitors and the Wacom One, I found no perfect option that allowed the tablet to mirror one of the primary screens. But I also haven't yet decided that running the device as a desktop extension is better. I'll have to work that out, as will all users of these kinds of devices. I've purchased two Wacom tablets, or maybe three, since sometime in the late 1990s, but I have never been able to master the skill of using a pen on a blank tablet while watching the results on a monitor. Maybe I didn't try hard enough or practice long enough, but it just never worked for me, and the tablets with displays were far, far out of my price range. Tablets with screens are clearly the future, and the Wacom One is the first such tablet that offers hope for those of us who haven't been able to afford the future. One feature that I consider important is missing, though. Wacom Intuos tablets have no screens, but they do allow the user to set up on-screen controls that are activated on the tablet with buttons and a scroll wheel. Tablets with screens all seem to lack those built-in buttons and scroll wheels. The Cintiq models, though, include an express key remote control that Wacom One users will need to pay extra for if they want those on-screen controls. Might there be a way to emulate these controls in software? Or if not, 
could Wacom increase the price a bit and then include the express key device in the box? The problem caused by the lack of an express key device is exacerbated by the pen's lack of more than one button. The single button is used to add a right-click function to the pen. Wacom support says the button can be reassigned to one on-screen action, but then the user would lose the ability to perform a right-click. Also, although most other Wacom pens have an eraser function, this is also missing on the Wacom One pen. The lack of on-screen controls is mentioned nowhere that I found in either the installation instructions or the manual. The Wacom Tablet Properties application, which is intended for use with all Wacom tablets, shows several on-screen control setup panels, so I expected to be able to create them. More than an hour's worth of searching Wacom's website and using Google to find answers that didn't exist, I contacted Wacom support, actually I had to wait until the next day, and learned the device doesn't support that feature. Had the instructions been better, I wouldn't have wasted my time or that of a Wacom support technician. But the pen does get good marks. See what I did there? Good marks, pen, never mind. The pen recognizes both pressure and tilt, but not rotation. The lack of rotation sensitivity isn't surprising because that's a feature needed primarily by professionals. Pressure and tilt are more important for most users. Tilt sensitivity is plus or minus 60 degrees, and it of course requires the use of a software brush that responds to tilt. Pressure sensitivity is most often used to control the width of a line, and as with tilt sensitivity, it requires a software brush that responds to pressure. Pressing harder makes a wider line. Pressure sensitivity is measured in levels. The Wacom One Pen has 4,096 levels of sensitivity. Seems like a big number. Why such an odd number, though? Well, digital devices use binary or base 2 numbers, so 1111111111, binary, 12 bits on, equates to 4,096 decimal. Wacom's Cintiq devices support 8,192 levels of pressure, so you might think they're twice as good. They're not. The Wacom Bamboo supports only 2,048 levels of pressure, so you might think it's terrible. It's not. In fact, most users won't notice any difference at all. The drawing surface of the Wacom One is excellent because its matte surface offers the feel of drawing or writing on paper. It seems even better than the surface on Intuos tablets. The surface might be a contributing factor, though, to this device's somewhat subpar color rendering. For the target audience, color performance is fine, but professionals with super critical eyes might be a little disappointed by the color accuracy reported to accommodate 72% of television's NTSC spectrum and 93% of sRGB. Most professional artists work in the Adobe RGB spectrum, and the Wacom One accommodates only 70% of that spectrum. And I keep coming back to the target market, though. Because this device is not being targeted to the high-end professional market, the sRGB display is sufficient, and even some professionals might not notice the difference. To someone who's used to viewing Photoshop on a 27-inch monitor, the Wacom One's 13-inch screen seems small, but again, this is a device being promoted to a specific segment of the market, people who don't spend hours every day working on photographs or graphic design. The ability to draw directly on the screen seems to be enough of a trade-off.
And the size has advantages because the tablet can be placed on top of a notebook computer or used on a small desk. The size also makes it possible to hold the tablet while working on it, and doing that immediately made two points obvious. First, the screen is not touch-sensitive. My hands kept wanting to treat the surface as if it was, though. Second, the express key becomes an absolute necessity. I had turned away from the computer, tilted the chair back, and put my feet up to work with Photoshop, but then I had to turn back to the computer repeatedly to use the keyboard or to find a panel that Photoshop opened on one of the other monitors. That was frustrating, but using the pen to edit a photograph was little short of wonderful. I had grabbed an old photo of the Strand bookstore at Broadway and 12th in New York City because one of the building's columns had some graffiti that looked like it'd be a good test. Using Photoshop's clone stamp tool with a mouse always feels a little like using a bar of soap. The pen made the edits, particularly around a man's head, much easier than they would have been with a mouse. The process was also considerably faster than it would have been with just the mouse, even with the clumsiness involved in using the keyboard. Built-in legs tilt the tablet surface a little less than 20 degrees. This is an important ergonomic feature, but it seems insufficient for use on a long project. Again, keep that target market in mind. The device also comes with three replacement nibs for the pen. These are located under one of the tablet's folding legs, and there is also a built-in nib puller instead of a separate small tool. Those separate small tools that come with other devices are easy to lose. Since it's part of the device, it's impossible to lose this one. Overall, it seems to be a well-thought-out device that fits a useful slot in the economical segment of the market for tablets with screens. Some of Wacom's pen tablets that have no screens sell for under $100, but these require the user to develop eye-hand coordination that I've simply never been able to master. I said earlier the Wacom One is not a Cintiq, so let's consider the price differences. The Wacom One costs $400, but serious users will probably want that $100 add-on, the express key device that adds the ability to use on-screen controls. Without on-screen controls, the device is much harder to use than it should be. Even with the express key add-on, though, the Wacom One costs $500. That compares with $650 for the lowest-priced Cintiq, and the largest Cintiq Pro approaches the cost of an adequate used car, a professional-grade SLR camera, or a new high-efficiency gas furnace. It's also smaller, lighter, and more portable than most of the devices in the Cintiq line. So here's the rest of the product line. The Wacom Cintiq, $650. The Wacom Cintiq Pro, which comes in four sizes, 13-inch, 16-inch, 24-inch, and 32-inch, these range from $700 to $3,300. The Wacom Cintiq 22HD, $1,700. And the Wacom One, $400 or $500 with the express key. So the Wacom One has a precise target market. Creative beginners, social content creators, budding photographers, and visual thinkers who want an affordable and attractive entry-level tablet with a screen. Clearly, this pen display tablet hits that target. So the bottom line is four cats. At last, a tablet with a screen from Wacom 
at an affordable price. The Wacom One is a bargain despite the lack of some features, but I wonder if the device would be more appealing if Wacom had been able to include on-screen functions. Without that ability, it's a battle to switch between the tablet and the keyboard, or to click through the menu structure on the tablet. If you're looking for a tablet with a screen and you have a limited budget, the Wacom One looks like a winner, and although 4Cats is a great rating, the Wacom One would have earned an enthusiastic 5Cats if on-screen controls had been available. You'll find additional details on the Wacom One website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, happy 30th birthday to Photoshop. Photoshop has been a part of the photographic landscape for so long that it's hard to remember a time before it existed. With its first release in February 1990, Photoshop actually predated the widespread acceptance of digital cameras, so early users had to deal with digitizing film images. Kodak had worked on digital camera prototypes in the 1970s, and Fuji had a 100 by 100 pixel monochrome camera that weighed 8 pounds back then. It wasn't until 2001 that cameras offered what was considered acceptable quality, 1 megapixel images, for $1,000. By then, Photoshop was 11 years old. Today, Lightroom and Lightroom Classic have taken over much of the photographic workflow from Photoshop, but the application continues to be an essential tool for precision editing of photographs, digital design, and advertising. Besides being an application that runs only on Windows and Mac OS computers, Photoshop has been released on iOS tablets. All Creative Cloud subscribers have access to the iPad version. Three months ago, the initial iOS release disappointed some users who didn't quite understand that it represented the beginning of development on a new platform. Adobe is positioning this new release as a major upgrade after just three months because object selection has been improved. And that's in addition to the mobile version's already good compositing features. Typeface support on the iPad still lags, so many typefaces aren't supported on the mobile device, and they're substituted destructively with other generic typefaces. Adobe has already added some desktop type controls to the mobile version, and doubtless support for more typefaces will be addressed in future releases. The object selection tool uses Sensei technology and is surprisingly accurate in identifying and selecting what the user wants. One of Photoshop's developers, John Kroll, showed an early version of the application in 2010. I've added a link to that video on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and longtime users of Photoshop may enjoy watching the 8-minute video from Adobe.
And in the most recently released update, content-aware fill has received a worthwhile improvement. Adobe's developers used images supplied by customers to better understand their needs. One of the primary requests was to add the ability to refine fills that needed multiple iterations to deal with complex images. So now users can break the fill region into subparts for better control and a more realistic fill. And lens blur has been improved by moving the process from the CPU to the graphics processing unit. That's the GPU. The result is a more realistic blur effect. So happy 30th to Photoshop, and may you have many more. It's discouraging that scam messages that claim to come from businesses are still so successful for crooks. I have received anti-scam messages from several companies in the past few weeks. The most recent, this week, was from UPS. UPS says fraudulent communications use a variety of forms that often appear legitimate by incorporating company brands, colors, or other legal disclaimers. The message says UPS will not request personal information, financial information, account numbers, IDs, passwords, or copies of invoices in an unsolicited manner through email, text, phone, or fax. It's unclear to me why any of these scam messages succeed, because most of them include clear indications that they are frauds. UPS refers people to the Federal Trade Commission's website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There is a generic response that will ensure you don't become the victim of a fraudster. Treat every phone call, email message, letter, fax, instant message, or person who rings your doorbell with a healthy amount of suspicion. Nobody will enter you in a contest to win a recreational vehicle if you forward their message. Microsoft and Apple will not call you with an offer to repair your computer. Neither will your internet service provider. No financial institution will ever call and request your username, your account number, or your password. The IRS does not call to demand payment. That list goes on and on and on. Currently, scams offer coronavirus cures. Scammers do pay attention to the news and adjust their cons accordingly. So the bottom line is really simple. Beware and be aware. No warnings are needed for spare parts, but you might want to be aware of this week's items, which include these. Some tech conferences, including Facebook's Big F8 event, have been canceled because of coronavirus fears. Crooks and scammers are capitalizing on those fears, so beware of messages from people you don't know. And 20 years ago, theaters were beginning to offer tickets online with a test in five movie houses in Dallas. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.